We are continuing our study in Jude, and we are still working on one word in the first verse, and that is our calling. And we're going to add another aspect to that that I don't want to neglect. And uh, so I really have two sermons today, so I'm going to try to factor those in somehow, meld them together. But uh, we're going to try to finish this, this word up this morning. And so Second Peter chapter 1 is a corollary passage that we want to look at. And we'll begin reading in verse 5. And I'll be reading on New King James Version, as is my custom. God's word declares, But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. To virtue, knowledge. To knowledge, self-control. To self-control, perseverance. To perseverance, godliness. To godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound... You'll be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, for for so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus showed me. Moreover, I'll be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables. We made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For we received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice, which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Let's go, Lord, and pray together as we continue our service this morning. Our gracious God and our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you again for this opportunity to gather in your name and for your word before us, your spirit within us and your people around us. And we thank you for this place that we're able to meet uh, and the comforts it affords us for this nation in which we can openly gather in your name for these purposes. And Lord, we know that all of this and so much more uh, is a great wealth that is not shared around the world, and we recognize a need to be good stewards of that, that we count it precious each time we can gather with your people around your word and your name. And so we pray that we might be attentive to your word to make this the priority of not just our week, but our lives, that we might take every opportunity afforded us and lay hold of them and recognize the rarity and the preciousness of the liberty we have to worship you openly. And then, Lord, we do come before you in thanksgiving uh, as well for those in authority over us, as we have seen this week, the transition of that authority on a national level. Uh, Lord, we 
recognize you as the authority above kings uh, and presidents and congressmen. And Lord, we uh, thank you. And we look forward to your kingdom on earth. Until that day, we pray that uh, we might be uh, submissive to the authorities that are, uh, recognizing that uh, you place them there for our benefit and to fulfill your purposes for the ages. And so, Lord, we pray that we might be a uh, attentive to our role there, that our testimony might be sure and clear. And Lord, we do pray for those that have authority, not only on a national political level, but uh, in many other levels. And we, uh, both very near at hand, within our homes, within our church, um, within our workplaces, in our community, and beyond. And Lord, we uh, recognize that you have placed these in our lives. And we pray that we might be submissive and, and honoring to those, and yet that we might uh, work in each environment to uh, call those that do not follow after you to do so, to confront them with their sin and with your judgment, and that your spirit might go before us and with us to convict that of those same truths that some might receive you as Savior and Lord and submit their authorities to your authority. And Lord, we... Uh, continue also to pray uh, that you might be with those of our number who are not feeling well, some here and some that we miss for that reason. And uh, Lord, we pray that you might supply and direct. We pray for uh, Mr. Fry particularly. Uh, and Lord, uh, we pray you might uphold him and strengthen him and, and uh, give wisdom to those that are involved in his care. And uh, Lord, we do thank you for your faithfulness to him and to his family. And we pray you might continue that in these days. And then, Lord, we do continue also to pray for uh, the uh, children that are being carried and their mothers, and we pray that you might keep them safe and bring them to uh, healthy deliveries. And, and uh, Lord, we pray that uh, in thanksgiving for these lives that you've given to our church. And we rejoice in them, and we know that they are a precious gift from your hand, that we are just stewards uh, caring for your children. And we pray that we might do so in a manner pleasing to you and according to your directives for us. And Lord, we also this morning uh, want to pray for our service tonight. We pray for Brother Hindle that uh, we might be able to make contact there and we look forward to a great time of fellowship and report there. We also pray for our business meeting coming up that uh, decisions made there might be in accordance with your uh, Spirit's will for our life and, and our church and, and our ministries, and we uh, just commit them to you. And again, Lord, we do uh, pray in thanksgiving for all your many blessings, and we commit this time to you and pray you might work in it mightily to honor, praise, and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, let's get started. The epistle of Jude, verse 1, says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called. And we have been taking some time, very deliberately, to investigate what it means to be called. For this is the description of the recipients of this letter from Jude. And if we are to be counted among that number, that this is for our benefit, that we need to understand what it means to be called. We have looked at it now for two weeks. This is our third week. Uh, hopefully by now you have a really good handle on what it means to be called of God. And that this is not an elite statement that is limited, but rather that it is universal. 
Um, but yet, these are really, at this point, referencing those who have responded to the call of God. And we saw that in Matthew 22, and we talked about the distinction between many are called, but few are chosen. And we saw the necessity of not only having God's call in our life, but responding to it, not just positively, but only one way, and that is by receiving Christ's righteousness as our own. That alone brings us into the kingdom of God. In that verse there in Matthew 22, um, we really didn't go into the aspect of the second word, where Christ says many are called, which was our focus, and we put our energy into it for two weeks. And, but then it goes on to say, many are called, but few are chosen. And that word chosen in the Greek is the same word that we find in other passages that is translated either elect or election or choose and chosen. And so these are the same words, uh, some variation in form, but essentially they are the same words. And we have over the last two weeks tried to understand the, many of the passages referring to the calling of God, including the difficult ones in Romans 8, uh, where it seems that God only calls the uh, ones that he intends to save, we find that, in fact, according to God's foreknowledge, that is still kind of true because he intends to save everyone. And so he calls everyone. He foreknows everyone. And he calls them. And that there is an interaction there that Romans 8 cannot stand by itself without Romans 10. And we saw that last week. And the necessity of us to look at the relationship there between these two passages that speak of the order of our salvation. How does it come to us? Uh, how do we experience it? How is it fulfilled? And these are both, one dealing with a human aspect, one the divine aspect, and they are interwoven into each other and not one to be taken and the other one ignored, as so many Calvinists do with that passage. In the midst of all this, we have seen that the calling of God has the, the, this special invitation has really been the focus not on the individual call, but on the corporate call. Are you in the group of people invited to the table of God's feast? That's really the question. And the Jews, for all those centuries, felt they were the only invited guests, and rightly so. Uh, yet we know that on their invitation, as we saw last week, was the little adage at the end of the invitation, which was, and guest, or guests. And so you had to come to Israel and to come to God by faith. And that was true for many Gentiles who came to God by faith, but they did so through Israel. They joined with Israel, either in spirit or physically. They always said, I'm going to follow the God of Abraham, the God of Joseph, the God of Daniel, indicating that they had to make a relationship on some degree with Israel. And so now, in the New Testament, many of these passages dealing with both calling and choosing and election, the choos chosen of God, uh, are dealing with the fact that God has now opened this invitation up and now he sends one to all men with their name on it. That is that whether you are Jew or Gentile, God says you are invited. You are called. 
Please come. Not just as a guest of Israel, but come on your own merits. See, we prayed for you today, and now here you are. It's amazing. Good to see you. I'll still visit you this afternoon. I told him I was going to come and see you this afternoon, but I'll come still. He came to me before I get to him. That's just Dick Fry's way, I gotta tell you that. So, the call of God, the invited of God into his kingdom and onto his table, of the of his the, the wedding feast of the son, is now open to everyone. Not through Israel, but directly. And this is why we are called in Christ Jesus, not we are called through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, through Moses, through the law. All that's done with. Now we are directly invited into the kingdom of God in Christ Jesus. He is the fulfillment. He has completed the law and has closed that book. And it is no longer necessary that we go through that avenue as a guest of the law, as a guest of Israel, to get into a relationship with God. We have the personal invite directly brought to us. And so this has been the force of these passages. And when we get to this other word, we're going to have to recognize that and remember that force in so many of the passages where these words are used, that they are generally speaking about people groups and not individual salvation. They are can be applied, and there are a few that do talk about your individual salvation. We're going to look at that here in some passages today in Romans, uh, as well as in uh, Peter and some other portions of Scripture, uh, including Revelation. And so we're going to see that there is a facet, but overwhelmingly, when we look at this, it's going to really focus on, is it just Israel and her guests that are allowed in the kingdom of God, or is it now the world? And we've already seen and made the case very strongly, I think, from Scripture that it is the world that God loved and sent his son to die for in John 3.16, very clearly. Before we get into our study, though, of the secondary word and the final understanding of our calling, being the called, uh, let's go Lord in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for the wonderful working of you in our lives, that you call us, that you uh, foreknow us, that you have uh, invited us into your kingdom by name. You have made every provision. The table is set. The payment has been made. Uh, the, the garments are offered. And Lord, we thank you. And that you have accomplished so much. And we know that we have nothing to boast in in receiving such a generous offer. But yet we receive what we must. And we recognize that. And we pray that we might have that humble heart to recognize our need and your great supply, to recognize the desperateness of our condition and the inability that we have to really resolve it, and then look at the bountiful way that you have not just fixed our problems, but made us great benefactors of your grace and mercy and goodness and love and your election. In Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in Second uh, Peter chapter 1, the passage we read earlier, we have uh, that word again, your election, your calling, could also be there. And so we have to, uh, or I'm sorry, your, your, your chosenness, that we have to involve that. And because of that relationship between your calling and your chosenness, many ha- in the 
in the traditions of Calvinism, uh, have stated, no, God only calls those who he, who he has foreloved and he has chosen before the foundations of the earth that he will save these people and not those people. And therefore, Christ Jesus only died for the elect. And that is the limited atonement. And we do not hold to that. We don't hold to the T-U-L-I or P. Um, and if you want me to engage each one of those, I can do that very, very much. I would be more than happy to do that. But we're really dealing with the limited atonement, as well as the idea that there's irresistible grace. That you, once God calls you, you can't say no. But that is very obviously not the case in Scripture, for we find uh, many examples of quite the reverse. And, uh, and we find many statements by God saying that he wants everyone to repent. He wants everyone to come to him. And that was true of the Gentiles in the New Testament as much as it was true of Israel in the Old Testament. Jeremiah, perhaps everyone will obey. Maybe everyone will repent and want to follow me. Uh, and he sends Jeremiah's way. And it's like, well, nobody did. But, so obviously you can resist the Holy Spirit. You can. I, I believe that's probably why we have a direct command in the Bible, do not resist the Holy Spirit. Um, that would be a silly command if it was impossible to resist him. And so we have plenty of scriptures pointing us in that direction, away from that, those two Calvinistic doctrines. And so we come to the idea of election, and we come to passages like Ephesians, like Romans, uh, and many other portions of scripture, and we get an idea somewhere along the line that, well, election means that God, before he created anything, chose who he would save and who he would not save. But that is not the force of the passages at all. And so the election passages, and there aren't very many of them, so it doesn't take long to catalog them. We're not going to go through all of them today. We're going to go through several, uh, and several of them overlap each other and repeat some issues. Um, but overwhelmingly, they fall into two categories. Not all of them, but two categories. We can deal with uh, most all of the statements about you are the chosen of God, you are the elect. And those two categories, I've already referenced one. The first category is they deal with people groups, not individual salvation. This is true in Romans. It is true in many of the places that we've already studied about calling, where we are going from the apostles defending the fact that, yes, you were the chosen nation, Israel, but now there's a chosen priesthood, that we are all priests. And so we find those passages that talk about you are a chosen nation, you are a chosen people, um, you are elect. That is, chosen means elect. It's the same Greek word. They just translate it differently in different passages. So don't let me, I'm going to interchange them because we interchange them in Scripture. Uh, and uh, that's maybe, so don't get the idea that election isn't there because every time you read chosen, it means elect. And so there's the, many of these passages, Romans 8, 9, 10, 11. We're going to look at Romans 11 today. Um, all talk about God had chosen Israel, and now he, because of their disobedience, because of their uh, determination, rejection of their Messiah, he has now chosen to, he has elected to expand his offer of the kingdom to all men. And that term election overwhelmingly is not to the individual who gets saved, but to the group of individuals who can be saved. 
And so now instead of having to be the guest of Israel, you have a direct invitation. God has chosen to do that. He has chosen through his son Jesus Christ to bring you a direct offer of salvation. And so when you look at the context of many of those passages, you're going to find that to be the element. Because we've studied that in the past, uh, last week, uh, we're not going to investigate those extensively this morning. I'm not going to take the time to do that again. The other category of the term election isn't referring to people at all. And this is especially prevalent in the book of Ephesians. And you'll find that where you were elect, and you know, we have an election that is referring to not who gets what, but what you're getting. God has chosen before the foundations of the world that you should be. Not that you should be saved, but that you should be in the image of his son. He has chosen before, uh, he has elected before the foundation of the wor- world that and it's not that you will be saved, that you individually will be saved, but rather here's the package that he's going to give you. Not just that your sins are forgiven, but that you're going to be children of God. That you're going to be joint heirs with Jesus Christ. That you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. That you're going to get this enormous package deal. God has chosen ahead of time what he intends to give you. And those passages do not speak at all to God choosing some to be saved and some not to be saved. But rather, they choose what it is that the saved will receive. What does God intend to do for you? And let's just look at it very quickly, because we haven't studied this. Let's look at Ephesians. And let's just pick up in chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons of, by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption, forgiveness. You see it all? What is he doing? He's not saying that he has chosen you individually to be saved. He has chosen us, see the corporate words, us. Now what a Calvinist will insert is there, us, the ones who are his elect ones that he died for. Instead of us who have received the calling of God. They have inserted something, a meaning there that isn't there. Paul is writing to the believers, just as Jude is, and he's saying, you are the called. That is, you have heard the divine call to salvation, and you've responded. And now, here's what God is giving you. Here's what he has chosen for you. He has chosen that you, here we go, look at this, and remember, verse 3 says, what is the purpose of all the verses to come? He's going to detail for you the spiritual blessings that you have in Christ. That's his whole purpose. Really, the rest of almost the whole book, at least the first two chapters, is all about God detailing for you the blessings you get as a believer. And so you have chapter 3, um, all about blessing. His blessed with every spiritual blessing. Well, what are they? Well, he chose us that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Wow, in Christ. Everyone who receives Christ is going to be holy and without blame. 
before God. Everyone who receives Christ, God chose that before the foundation of the earth, he chose that everyone who would trust in his son, everyone who would be in Christ, would receive these things. He has predestined us to adoption as sons by, Christ, by Jesus Christ to himself. He chose beforehand not just to get you in the neutral zone, eradicate your sin, but he wanted to do more than that. He chose that everyone who received Christ as his Savior, this is one of the heavenly blessings you're going to get, he predestined you to be adopted as a son. He is not here stipulating who is going to get saved and who is not going to get saved. That's not what's being chosen. That's not what's being elected. That's not what's being predestined. What is being predestined and being chosen in this passage are the blessings that are going to accompany your salvation. Does not, this is not determinism. That is nowhere implied here. And so all these two chapters that describe the grace and the mercy and the wonder of what God has done for us is really just expanding on verse 3, which says here are every blessing from heavenly places. That's what it's doing. And it's an offer that is being made to all men. To as many people as you can find. Invite them to the wedding feast. But they can't just come on their own merits. They've got to come with the right clothing, the clothing of Christ's righteousness in him, in Christ. In Christ, by Jesus Christ. Do you see that? That's replete throughout this passage. And so, over and over again, God did all this. Why did he do that? Well, certainly because he loved us. But we also find a secondary purpose. Why does he want to give you such a great gift? He wants to give you such a great gift, knowing that when you arrive in his presence you will want to give him great glory. We have every reason to praise God. He didn't give us some mealy, measly, little salvation. He is not... stingy with his love. He's not giving you a stingy offer. He's giving you an enormously bountiful offer. And that's what these passages about election and choosing are really full of. And there are many of them that are in that category. And so once you take the category about people groups and the category about choosing what kind of salvation you're going to receive, what's the package, once you eradicate, or not eradicate, but once you, you place those in their proper confines, you realize that they're really, you're down to now just, a few verses that talk about the individual salvation. And even the parable in Matthew 22, really Jesus is talking about, I went to Israel, the, the, the first invited people, they, what do they do to my prophets? What do they do to my messengers? What do they do to my offer? And so then I sent my servants out, the apostles, um, to invite everyone. And many of them came and filled my banquet hall, but you stood to be clothed in righteousness. And even that parable is really about Israel and the Gentiles. And so we're really scrambling now to find any verses that talk about God choosing some to be saved and thus damning others to eternity in hell. No, what is consistent throughout the scriptures is that God wants all men everywhere to come to salvation. His offers for the world, because that is who he loves, the world. 
That's who Jesus died for, was the world. That any who receive him can have this wonderfully pre-planned package, this wonderful deal. So that is those passages. But I want to take you now to the passage read earlier, which is in Peter. And this gives us a whole different perspective on the idea of being the elect. And remember, much of Peter um, and Jude are very closely linked together, um, Peter's writings. And so we come to this, and we, we see that the thinking of Jude and the thinking of Peter are very similar uh, in verbatim in some cases. So they have a similar document, or else they're, one of them is deriving some of the information from the other one. And so we come to this, uh, and we find uh, a very strong declaration, which takes us aback a little bit. If the Calvinistic model and teaching is correct, uh, this is way out of line for Peter to write, and uh, it, it does not correlate with the rest of uh, their, their teaching. And so we come to a, a passage here in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5 and following, that says that you're going to have to give all diligence to do some things. This is not to earn your salvation, but as a believer, as one of the called, because you have responded to God's call, universal call, and thus you have done the interactive things that, that bring you into the kingdom of God, qualify you, count you worthy of sitting at the feast that we know none of us are worthy of. Once you have interacted, now you are the called, now you are the elect. Not that you are special comparatively to other people that are going to be destined to hell, that God, before the world began, chose you and not them to be saved, but rather that you responded to his universal call, you accepted the gift that they wouldn't want, they despised it, they hated it, they destroyed it. We cherished it. We recognized our need and that that was the solution. So, what do we do now? Now that we are the called. And Peter here calls you with all diligence to add something to your faith. You see it there? It says, for this reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith. And now he has a list. So our faith is where it begins. Faith is where our salvation really begins because we have accepted the gift of God, this wonderful thing he chose before the foundation of the earth, this huge package deal that he chose to give to whoever would accept it. Um, and <clears throat> phenomenal, phenomenal grace. Uh, didn't Not miserly at all. And uh, we accept it by faith. But if that's where your experience with God, your relationship with God ends, you are taking some great risks from what I can tell in the scripture. And that is, those risks are that you are not in a full, true relationship with God. And Peter says, this is really important. I want you to, with all diligence, that is, make it a priority, apply yourself, and recognize this is going to take some work. It's going to take some effort. It's not just going to, you're not just going to skate along, live in your life how you please for your own comforts and interests, and this stuff is God's going to just make it happen to you. You are going to have to do these things. These are directives for you. With all diligence, you as a believer, as the called, as the elect, add to your faith. Not more faith, we always need more faith, but here's what you need to add to your faith. Virtue. 
is the first thing he lists. That is, that you're going to walk worthy of the calling that you were called to. Now, if I were to write this list, I probably would have put knowledge before virtue. Because I have to know, but that's not true, because your conscience knows virtue. You know things that are excellent. God has put that inside of every man. And only when we maul it do our consciences get seared. We all have it at the beginning. But we can destroy our conscience. And that's what we're seeing many people do in many different ways, destroying their conscience, either philosophically or medically, uh, they're with drugs and alcohol, things like that. They're doing it one way or another, destroying their conscience. But we all have that to begin with. And so he says, add to your faith virtue. Add to virtue knowledge. You're going to have to study. So you're going to have to do what's right, do what is virtuous, what is good. You're going to have to study. You're going to have to increase your knowledge of God. Add to that knowledge self-control. Oh, man, now it got almost impossible, right? <laughs> this is an uphill climb. You're going to apply virtue and knowledge to your life and walk the walk that you made the talk about when you accepted Christ as your Savior. You're going to have to exercise an abundant amount of self-control. You're going to have to, let me put another word in there, you're going to have to discipline yourself. This is about the discipline, that I'm going to be where I'm going to be, I'm going to do what I'm going to do, and though there's, there's forces that are wanting to stop me, both internally and externally, there are going to be influence, they're going to want me to go away from virtue, to, to disavow the knowledge of God, and to not increase my faith and to be strengthened in it. Um, I'm going to discipline myself, I'm going to have self-control to apply myself to the knowledge that I've learned, to the virtue that I know, to the faith I have placed in Christ. Self-control. That is why in the fruit of the Spirit, on the list, is down there toward the bottom, self-control. We all know love, joy, peace, long-suffering. We know the front end. We don't necessarily know very many of the back end, and self-control is one of them. One of the evidences the Holy Spirit is active in your life is you have discipline to resist sin, to resist temptation, to stand against the evil one, to stand against the dead, old nature that you're dragging around with you, the flesh, the Bible uses that term, that I'm going to resist that, that I can conquer it, that I can beat this body into submission. I don't literally have to sit there in the mirror and do this, but I do have to drag my tired old bones out of that bed when the alarm goes off and get up and do what is required of me for the day. And before I go to work, that I set my relation with God as a priority more than my acquisition of funding as a priority in my life. That I'm going to discipline myself and not let this flesh dictate things and its comforts, but I'm going to dictate to it its spiritual needs and how I'm going to meet them. This requires self-control. This is how you do it. And you make a commitment in your life that I'm going to discipline myself and these things are going to be a priority. I'm going to make those things happen. I was raised in a military family. Most of you know that. And uh, there's one thing you get in the military that maybe is why every young person probably should spend four years in the military between 16 and 20. Yeah, I said 16. Um, is to learn discipline. They don't need to go to high school. 
as much as they need to go to the military and learn discipline. I wish there was another place to go to learn discipline like that. Um, in Israel, by the way, this is everyone has to enlist in the military. Boom. You got to give your, I don't know how many years, is it two? Two years of military? Uh, and then they take their gun home. <laughs> they don't turn it in, they take it home. And so every house in Israel, they got, I don't know how many automatic weapons they have. But uh, we need the discipline of applying knowledge to our lives. And without that discipline, knowledge is worthless. Without that discipline, knowledge of virtue, your conscience, worthless. Without that discipline, your faith will never get off the ground. For self-control. To self-control perseverance. Not just disciplined for a day, but disciplined day after day after day, whether it's easy, when it's hard, there are some Sundays it's really easy for me to get up and get at it and come here. There are some Sundays it's really hard. Um, I have more easy Sundays than hard Sundays now because I don't have children in my house so much. They're adult children. And so I don't have to sit there and get them all up and ready. Um, but we had a discipline. We had a schedule, and my kids knew it. And they weren't going to be late. And if they had to go in their jammies, they were going to be dragged out of, the, out of the house in their jammies, going to church. If they didn't get breakfast, that was their fault, not our fault, because we always got them up. My wife always got them up. She's really disciplined a lot more than I am. Um, and uh, we had baths and bedtime Saturday night, because everything Sunday depends upon Saturday night. And uh, if you're here going like this, it's because you didn't value this last night. The discipline of, of learning something on Sunday morning is, shows whether it was of any value to you Saturday night. And so no, we don't plan much on Saturday evenings. Here's what our plan was. Baths and bed. We get to go to church tomorrow. My kids heard that every Saturday night growing up. We get to go to church tomorrow, baths and beds. We don't stay up. It's a priority. Perseverance. Even when there's things going on, even when things aren't going your way, even when it's, yes. Add perseverance to perseverance. Godliness. Now we start entering into the realm of being like God. Now you're starting to walk like him. Godliness, brotherly kindness. I do not judge other people, abuse them. I do not maluse them just because I have a disciplined, godly lifestyle and they don't, but rather I have kindness toward them to try to bring them what it takes to bring, add to their faith, virtue and the virtue, knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness. I, we, just as Peter here is writing to these people, the elect, the called. And he's saying, this is what you need to add. Don't get complacent thinking you can coast into heaven on a faith declaration you made when you were 10. You need to be adding. He comes in after brotherly kindness, then love. Now, if you get all these, these are yours and abound. And you don't get a little bit of it. You're always striving to get big buckets full of this stuff, of knowledge, of virtue, of self-control, of perseverance. You want buckets of this stuff, of godliness, of kindness, of love. You want tons of it. You want it, and you want it to abound, to overflow is literally the term, to overflow in your life. 
you got more than you can use, like most of your clothes closets. Okay? You want your spiritual clothing to abound more than you could possibly wear. We all have it. I think half my wardrobe, I, don't, I look at it and I think, ah, oh, this is my favorite. So I always wear that one until it's worn out. And then I get a new one. I don't even go back to that one. I still have it there. And I don't know why, but it's there in case. We abound. Oh, that we would abound in the spiritual clothing. So all of this Peter lays out there. says, if you lack these things, you are short-sighted, blind, and you have forgotten something. And that is what you should be so thankful for is that your sins have been cleansed. People who are remembering that they are sinners saved by grace will strive to add all these things to their faith. Because God has elected to give us such a huge benefit package, how can we not seek to please him? Then he's going back, going to go back to that word diligence in verse 10. Verse 10 is what we focus on. Everything else so far has just been extra. Verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Here are the exact same phrases that Peter heard coming out of Jesus' mouth in Matthew 22. And so where we started two weeks ago is where we're going to end in this idea of calling here in Peter. Do you get it? Here it is, the kingdom of God. You want entrance You want to be allowed in? You want to be among the chosen? Chosen not out of a crowd to, I want you to be saved, I want you to be saved. No, chosen to receive what I have prepared for you. And in that parable, he says, the meal has been prepared, the feast is prepared, everything is ready. What does that mean? I have elected this benefit this kingdom this feast for you and I'm sending you an invitation I'm calling you to it and Peter here says that you have an element in that process it is your responsibility to make your calling and your election sure It is not in the mind of God in eternity past that he would save some and not others. It was in his mind that he would provide for a glorious salvation for everyone who believed, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. That is the context of almost every use of that word, chosen and elect. So what is your responsibility? Your responsibility is to be diligent to make your call and election sure. Not wishy-washy, not, I hope I get to heaven, I hope I've been good enough. Well, you can't be good enough. You're in the wrong clothes. Get out of those rags and put on something glorious like the righteousness of Christ. 
increase your faith by adding knowledge, by adding virtue, knowledge, self-control, diligence, perseverance, it says. But do you see the terms being used over and over? Make sure of your calling by doing these things. These are the things that you add to your faith throughout the Christian walk to establish yourself, to root yourself deeply into the nutrients of God's salvation so that you produce fruit. And this brings us to the last use of calling. The other use of this term, the called, refers not to your salvation, but to your service. I'm not going to have time. But let, let's, let me, before I get to that, let's go to Romans 11. I, I said I was going to go there, and I don't want to be a liar. So let's go to 11, chapter 11 of Romans. <clears throat> Verse 28, it says, Concerning the gospel, they, referring to Israel... Oh, let's go to 26, because that's more fun to start there. And so all Israel will be saved. That's a pretty powerful declaration, isn't it? All Israel is going to be saved. At least one generation of it. The deliverer will come out of Zion. He will turn away our godliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them, when I take away their sins. So some future point, all Israel, future, will be saved, delivered. Verse 28, concerning the gospel, they, which is referring to Israel, are enemies for your sake. At that time, they were in contention. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy. Notice, you obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so... These also have now been disobedient that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy, for God has committed them to all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments as ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. This is going back to that whole idea of Israel. Do you see it? The whole context is Israel. God chose Israel. He he didn't unchoose them. He didn't unchoose them. He made a way to choose us as well. Through Jesus Christ, we get the invite ourselves as well. Our name on it. And if God unchose Israel, by the way, that is the Reformed doctrine, that the church replaced Israel, Israel has no future, no promises, no future. I don't know what happened since 1940s but, in their doctrine, but, but historically their doctrine, the Reformed people, all Reformers, doctrine was that the church replaced Israel um, and that Israel has no future. Catholic doctrine as well, really. But that's historically where they were at. And they were very anti-Semitic for that very reason. If that is true, then God's a liar. And your salvation isn't sure. So you have a part to play 
in making your salvation sure by adding to your faith that list. God has a part in making your salvation sure, and that is by sending you the invitation, by choosing a wondrous package to offer you, and it is irrevocable. That is, God's invitation isn't going to go away. God's package isn't going to stop. You can be confident that he will complete what he begins in you. You're calling election irrevocable. He called Israel. He is going to, for one generation of Israel at the end, um, they're going to experience that and they're going to have a thousand years in his kingdom and God is going to fulfill his promises to them because he is faithful. He will do it. And if Reformed doctrine is correct, God is a liar. And you cannot be confident of anything from him in terms of his promises. He could capriciously just decide he's done with you and he wants to go on some other group. But no, his calling and his election are irrevocable and so he still has promises to, to Israel he's going to fulfill. And every promise he makes to the church in Jesus Christ is sure. Every promise is sure. You see how you have a divine human elements that come together. I have a confidence in my salvation because God has chosen to grant it to me and to all who would trust in him. And I get to have my sins forgiven. I get the righteousness of Christ to be clothed in. I get to be adopted into his kingdom. I get all these things. It's incredible. But not only is God making it sure by his word, his contract with us, but we have an opportunity to make it sure by adding to our faith those things Peter lists. And all through these election passages, what you will notice is this interaction between God and man. God initiates, man responds. God continues, God, man responds. God persists, man responds. God completes, man responds. This is for his glory. We don't get any glory in adding to our faith virtue. Duh, why wouldn't I? Adding to my virtue knowledge, why wouldn't I? Why don't I want to know Jesus better day by day? Why don't I want to know his word better? It saved me from my sin. It gave me a presence, place in his kingdom. It, it put me at the family table. Why wouldn't I want to know it? Why wouldn't I want to discipline my life to conform it? Why wouldn't I want to persevere? Why wouldn't I want to be godly? Those are questions I have for Christians who are so blinded that they don't think about adding to their faith, to make their election and calling sure. God has done his part to make the election and calling sure. He swore to it by an oath, and he cannot lie, and his calling and election are irrevocable. His side of the equation is sure. Your side of the equation can be, and that's what Peter wants. I want your side of the equation to be sure. <laughs> Here's how to do it. And so, 
we see these usages of these terms not saying who gets saved and who doesn't get saved, but what God has for the saved, what people groups he intends to save out of all people, and then the confidence we have in our election. That we are the elect because we responded by faith. That we are sure of our election because we've added to our faith that list. Now, the other usage of the term. And for this, I want you to go to Corinthians. And again, I told you I had two sermons. So the last sermon is going to be five minutes. You don't, you don't act like you believe me. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Here we go. I'm in chapter 10. I don't know why. There we go. I'm sorry. I got Romans and Corinthians mixed up. Chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. Just glanced at my list there. Chapter 7. I knew that didn't look right. Verse 17 says, But as God has distributed each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk and so ordain all the churches. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Let each one remain the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. For he was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he was called while free is Christ's slave. You are bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. Now concerning virgins, he goes, I have no command from the Lord, yet I give judgments one from one whom the Lord has, in his mercy has made trustworthy. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present dis- distress that it is good for a man to remain as he is. And he goes on to describe the relationship between men and women and uh, marriage and the aspect of staying in the condition in which you are called. Uh, he also talks about his own personal calling. That we are called, and these are all associated with the spirit gifts. We are called to serve. We are called to serve. We are called to serve. And Paul's going to talk about his calling to serve. Peter's going to talk about a calling to serve. Um, that part of being listed as the called isn't just about my salvation. It's also about my service. I am called into ministry. And when you go to um, Romans uh, 12, and we find the uh, list of the gifts of the Spirit, and, of course, uh, in 1 Corinthians as well, we find the gifts of the Spirit that this is a calling of God in your life to minister it one to another. That you're called into ministry. is isn't just pastors who have to receive a call into ministry. All of you have received a call into ministry. It's part of being the called. You are the called. You're called not only into the kingdom, but once you're in the kingdom, you understand I am a servant of the king. I'm called into service. And I do not have to say, well, maybe when I get to this point, I can serve God. No, serve God in whatever condition you are in. You can serve God as a slave. You can serve God as a master. You can serve God uh, as a single person. You can serve God as a married person. You can serve God as a circumcised person. You can serve God as an uncircumcised person. You can serve him as a Jew. You can serve him as a Gentile. Serve the Lord. However, he, whatever condition you are in, um, as long as you are spiritually maturing yourself by adding to your faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, that list, um, you should be serving. Service is the exercise of your faith 
And it's no mistaking it to Hebrews. It talks about your calling in chapter 10. And guess what's in chapter 11? Your faith at work. Faith is the evidence of things unseen, the substance of things hoped for. And they list off a whole bunch of people who by faith did something. And it's all related to your calling. And boy, there's a book of Hebrews about making sure, right? Oh, make sure that you are saved. Make sure you are called, you're elect. Make sure. Well, among the aspects of making sure is your service to God. He has served you very bountifully. Are you serving him? We call it, I'm a member of his kingdom, I'm a child of his, but we don't act like he's our parent that can tell us what to do. We don't act like he's our king who can give us commands to obey. We act like he's just there to be a sugar daddy. Gimme, gimme, gimme. My name's Jimmy. I don't know why I had to throw that in there, but that's not what we do. Instead of going to God and saying, you've already given me, how do I serve you now? What do you want from me? How can I serve you? This is part of our calling. And Paul understood that because at his calling to salvation, he was at the same time in his testimony that we didn't get to this morning, but the term, he used the term, my calling. And he wants to remind Timothy, this in Timothy, about his calling. Make sure that you fulfill your calling. He said, my calling, that he rehearsed with the Corinthians and others, we see it in Acts, was not only to have a relationship with Christ, but to be his servant. You're going to go and share the gospel with the Gentiles. That's his calling. I'm going to do what I'm called to do. So you're not just called to be a Christian, you're called to do the service of the Lord. And if you're trying to get one without the other, you're blind. You're not adding to your faith. Virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, love. And that puts into jeopardy to doubt your whole relationship with God. Fulfill your calling. Add to your faith. You know that your calling and your election are sure. That you have every reason to know, not just guess, but to know, not just hope, but to, in a human form, but to know, to have every confidence that the full package that God has chosen for the foundation of the earth that you should receive is yours, that he will complete what he has begun in you. But you have responsibility in that equation as well. Add to your faith diligently this week. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for a wonderful term, and we know that it's been abused by many over centuries to mean what it doesn't mean. In the midst of this, we have lost the directives that we have there and the preciousness of the promises that are there. Lord, thank you for the fullness and the completeness of your word and your spirit that we might now live it. And Lord, we're all different places in our walk with you, and, but we all require that we keep adding to our faith and Maybe we've not been as diligent as we need to be. 
We've not exercised the interest in virtue and in knowledge. We have not pressed ourselves into disciplining our lives, persevering, pressing on, or of extending kindness and love. Lord, help us. We know you will. You know you want to, if we will simply allow you. So Lord, we humbly come before you, thanking you that your calling election cannot be taken away. We are sure it is for our part to respond to it. It is the only thing that is in doubt. And so Lord, we pray we might renew our commitment of adding to our faith. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.